where the hell is Eric? He's like five minutes late. Look, we're on a tight schedule this week. We can't afford... Wait a minute. I hear something outside. Oh my god. Brian! Check it out! What are you doing in a World War One Zeppelin? I'm in a Zeppelin! Check it out! I just said that! It's awesome! It's totally authentic! It's completely original! I certainly hope you're not planning anything foolish! What? No! No! Rosh Hashanah is next month! What? Never mind! Never mind! Hey, hey, hey! I've got an authentic World War One firebomb! What the hell is a tire thong? That sounds grossly inappropriate to our show's content! I know! It's awesome! It's gonna be great! Do me a favor, stand over there! Okay, I'm gonna stay right here! Alright, over there, great! Staying right here! I'm gonna count down three, two, one! Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Brian Moriarty. And I am Eric Brickmont. And I am not covered in third-degree burns, as <laughs> our cold open might uh, make have, you think. Indicated. But it's a perfect reason why we should have a fire extinguisher in the nerd cave, which we don't. It's probably yeah. a really bad idea. Because you never know, you know, when we're going to be Zeppelin bombed. Right. Because that could happen. Yeah. You know, Canada sure. is not that far away. Canada. They have, we have nothing to fear from the Canadians. Except for his firebombing Zeppelins. Uh-huh. That might have been the Germans. I get so confused sometimes. I'm sorry. Oh, uh, well. It's these research-heavy episodes. I'd this is like, going to make the, the final episode of World War One real interesting. <laughs> it was at that point where the Kaiser of Canada <laughs> collapsed his power. <laughs> and Canada became known as the Weimar Republic. <laughs> um... Wow. Under the leadership of Hitler. There's, Wait, actually, there's actually a hilarious... If you've seen the play, the um, complete works of William Shakespeare abridged, there's an opening where someone does a presentation on Shakespeare, and he gets his, he drops his cards and mixes them up. And he, <laughs> and he did the wrong research. He ends up doing research, research on World War II. So he ends up saying the events of Hitler, but as... Shakespeare is like, it was in 1934 that he and his mistress, Ava Braun, <laughs> Shakespeare and his mistress, and, and, so, and then of course, you know, in 1939, he invaded Poland, and sus, and, and therefore William Shakespeare was responsible for the start of World War II. <laughs> it's, That's pretty funny. It's hilarious. Wait, what is this? It's called The Complete Works of William Shakespeare Abridged. It is literally all 37 shows uh -huh. that Shakespeare wrote, or at least the ones that we attribute to him officially, uh, done in a 90-minute play that's hilarious it is awesome that's really funny oh yoy wow so this is the beginning of our very first three-parter this is the third act i believe in the, the the second episode you revealed to me that you were my father and then cut off my hand yeah which you know i'm really sorry about and i will pick up the dry right. cleaning bill i right. promise and Aunt Teresa was frozen in carbonite that's right so. and then and then we did free her and then, and then we we had to kill Rush Limbaugh to escape from his from his palace of, of his pleasure palace. Yeah, yeah. That was a really weird episode. 
<laughs> no, we were talking about World War One. We were, yeah. And uh, let's let's recap where we actually left off, shall we? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, we finished in 1917, and with that, one of the most pivotal moments in the war. Sure, definitely when, a turning point. Yeah, when America finally, after all of these years, could no longer uh, keep out of it. Uh, largely due to the Germans, in fact. In fact, I believe America would have stayed out of the war uh, completely if it had really been given the Sure, the they would have continued to supply the British probably with arms, but they wouldn't have engaged in it if the Germans hadn't just, you know, yeah. kept. Well, well, they broke their promise. Yeah. The, the idea was that they were going to, you know, stop sinking American merchant ships. They were essentially not going to do this all-out, unrestricted submarine warfare, yeah. which they, you know... Uh, agreed to do initially and actually held to that for quite some time. It wasn't until 1917 that yeah. they, they abandoned that. Now, being that I am the layman of the of the two of us on this topic, I would say that was a gross military uh, misjudgment on the part of the Germans. Because I'm assuming at this point that they would thought they would have thought that Americans would have backed down because they were predominantly isolationist. They thought, okay, well, they're they're helping the British, but they. They won't. They won't get into the war. So maybe yeah. if we put enough pressure on them, they'll they'll back down and they'll stop. Well, I, I think you you've got part of it there. But when you look at the bigger picture of what was going on in 1917, the Germans and the Hungarian, or sorry, the Austro-Hungarians were were definitely realizing the war was not just at a stalemate, but was actually going really bad for Germany because the Allies had a lot more money that they could invest in this war effort than Germany had. And had a lot more resources that were available to them. Because remember, there was a complete and total naval blockade of Germany at this point by the British. So the Germans were relying on any and all food that was coming out of the Balkans to, to support Germany. And oil and coal resources in that area as well. And everything that was going on with the Ottoman Empire at that time in that part of the world. Everything that happened with the Russian Revolution. Everything that was going on that totally further destabilized the Balkan region was having a serious impact on on Germany's economy and uh, ability to sustain itself, essentially. So they were definitely being um, strangled to death as a country. And a lot of civilians were dying as a result of it. There was, there was serious instances of starvation and lack of medical supplies. And a lot of people, you know, were, were suffering. So Germany was kind of at its breaking point. If it didn't do something and do something quick, it knew that it was eventually going to be strangled out of existence understood but then i guess well my question would be why america why why bully america at that point america always had the potential to enter the war against germany we knew that there was serious anti-german sentiment against uh you know germany obviously and 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 everything the whole war effort right was very much focused on supporting the allies uh, even though they wanted to keep out of the war. But they knew eventually America would, would have to be drawn in. And uh, they didn't expect America, however, to bring the forces that it did as quickly as it did. And that was the key miscalculation. They believed that if they were able to convince Mexico to join on their side and distract the Americans... They would have a home front situation they'd have to deal with first before they could send troops overseas. Exactly. I see what you're saying. And, gotcha. and, it, and it's more than that. They, because America did not have a very large standing army at that time. You're looking at, you know, maybe around 100,000. Yeah, mostly ready to go mostly to war. state militias was what was being used for military action in the state, right? Yeah. So. But pretty quick, you had a draft that, you know, brought that number to about 2 million in America. Which is, let's talk about that for a second. So let's break down the chain of events. We finally bring this into how America got involved with the war, right? So. 
On April 6th of 1917, President Wilson goes to Congress and officially asks Congress to declare war. And let's just, sorry, to make this a civics civics class for a second, but I really want to kind of recap um, those who maybe don't, aren't aware of American government. Congress is the only power in the federal government who has the ability to declare war. Everything else that involves the president sending military troops are policing actions. And at this point in time, the president did not have to notify Congress of doing that. He could have technically, as commander-in-chief, gotten involved and retaliated if he had wanted to. But it would have been considered really, very, very bad. Because one, we were already isolationist. And two, again, we were we had not officially declared war on them. Right? That And Wilson just was reelected under the ticket of he kept us out of the war. So he'd be really careful about the way that he approached this. Exactly. So he needed to have a justified reason. And... The Germans now saying, this is total war. We don't, we, this is, uh, you know, we're going to basically do whatever we want. Yeah. That's was like, okay, well, so clearly we have someone who has no sense of reason or honor as far as the rules of, of engagement. So now we have no choice. And let's clarify, total war had existed since 1914. There was, there was a state of total war. What we're really talking about is unrestricted uh, submarine warfare, which is what brought war to America. Right. Yeah. Because as you said a couple episodes ago, the U-boats were firing on anything. Right. Which it could have been a mercantile vessel that had no weapons on it. Right. Yeah. That they were just, they had suspected. Uh, It could have been, it could have been a fishing boat for all we know. Right. And it was, it was very frightening to the American people and it was very upsetting. And it was something where finally there was enough sentiment behind it to support the effort to actually go to war. Do not mistake it, though. There were a lot of people in America who were vocally against it, even when Congress approved the the, the declaration of war. Uh, America was never actually officially considered an ally in those wars either. We were considered a supporting force. Uh, we were not considered part of the, the ally offensive in that sense. We were there to help. And we made that very clear. And quite honestly, the European nations that were the allies made that very clear as well. Uh, they had owned the the bloodiest of this conflict. They had owned the most dead. They had owned the most devastation in terms of their land. And they took a great deal of pride in that, if you will. You know, And, and that was partially what led to so many deaths as well. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about why World War One was as devastating as it was and why the last year of this war was such a huge eye-opener when it came to uh, this type of warfare that it would redefine the way that it would be performed for all future generations. But we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves at this yeah, point. Yeah, we are. The other, the other piece of timeline that we have to, like you said, we had a no-standing army, right? When the Congress passed the Selective Services Act, we now had the draft again. For the, I think this has been the first time the draft had been instituted since the Civil War. So, <laughs> pretty big deal. Huge deal. Yeah. Now, you're, as you're right, now we have an army that is escalated to 2 million troops, right? Now, of course, it would take some time for them to, even once that had been declared for them, to get over to Europe. As you said earlier, not as long as Germany was hoping for, right? So let's talk a little bit about that. So this war in 1917 could have been anybody's game at this point. Yes, it was fought to pretty much a stalemate, and you were looking at almost equal casualties uh, by both sides at this point. And you had a, a very interesting dynamic because Russia was now out of the game with the Red Rebellion at the end of 1917 and, and everything leading up to that. 
you quickly found that, uh, you know, the second front that had existed that had distracted the Hungarians and the Austrians and the, and the Germans and their allies in that area was, was gone. Now the Germans could really refocus their forces on the Western Front and make big pushes the way they had intended to do back in 1914 and 1915, but had been prevented by supply shortages, miscommunications, and the Russians being much more uh, determined than they had originally anticipated. You know, this huge army that that you know Nicholas had had mustered up, and it's a very advanced army. So it would not go down without a bloody nasty fight. In 1917-1918 would see the most casualties of this entire war. All the years combined uh, would be overshadowed by the amount of dead, maimed, and wounded in this time period. And uh, you, you find that, that no more, I think, suffered as badly as, as the French. You know, at the end of this war, the French lost 1.7 million. Which is, that's just unbelievable. Because, I mean, even in World War II, you know, we talked about the primary forces, right? We had England, Russia, and in the, the United, United States. States. Yeah. Half a million soldiers from America, half a million soldiers from Britain. Granted, there was 20 million plus in Russia. In Russia. Russia was but, devastated. I mean, but... Still, I mean, anything over that, that's just, it's an, it's almost hard, like hard, hard to just comprehend, to process that yeah. many people Fra dying. France was devastated. And, you know, you, you find some of these particular battles of 1917 gaining no more than 500 yards, but at the cost of... Right. We talked about that. Yeah, right. a quarter of a million people. Yeah. So with that... You found the the French were completely and totally demoralized, and we talked about this in the other episode. You know this this open revolt that was happening. French soldiers approaching the line and their commanders drunk, putting down their weapons and saying, "No, we're not going to fight anymore. We're not going to just be killed for nothing." And this is kind of a good thing and a bad thing, right? Sure, absolutely, we want to make sure that we're not sending people off to their deaths, but you still need to be able to hold the line. And it did eventually take them um, a new commander to whip people back into into order. Uh, Pate, I believe, is is the way to pronounce his name. But he he you know with an iron fist came on in, summarily executed some French soldiers very publicly for disobeying orders, and it got people's to pay attention and and, and get back into the fight. And he did other things that were That's pretty uh, extreme. I mean, it was. But it was an extreme time, and 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 I'm not condoning his actions by any means. But at the same time, it, they were desperate. You know, so many had died at this point. They they needed to stay in the fight to make sure that more would not, and they had to keep the the Germans away. So they they made these extreme choices, and for better or worse, it did keep the French army together. Uh, what I find incredible is finally uh, around July, you you finally have the first Americans bringing their presence uh, to the trenches, and they are shocked by what they see. Nobody was prepared for the misery and devastation uh, that they would come across. And many of these letters home, I mean, express this. Uh, the, the Americans who landed in England originally were very well received. Um, if, if anything, they were kind of made a little bit of fun of, kind of the guys who were late to the game. Uh, they were often called uh, dog faces. That was a common uh, term for an American soldier in England at that time. Uh, interestingly enough, we think it's because their dog tags 
that they wore oh, around their necks. Gotcha. Uh, that, and they tend to be a little bit more rough and rugged. They were just going through their, their training, so they are oftentimes a bit dirty, covered in mud. Uh, they also went after every single woman they saw. Oh, yeah. Every single woman. And Well, well I mean, you got to think the median age of a, of, a, of a newly recruited army soldier's got to be what? 20 years old yeah pretty young where hormones are still raging through your system yeah these were these were young kids in a in a totally foreign land away from sweethearts and wives and and maybe never even had an opportunity and considered that they were going off to this horrible bloody war this is not uncommon you you see this kind of behavior in, in a lot of wars uh what they what they like i said were amazed by though was the brutality of this war how yeah, you know, I I don't know how else to describe it as just brutal, as, as tearing down everything that you are as a human being, and just trying to survive, not even as a human, just to be able to live as yeah. as a as an entity, uh, and it was very very shocking. But what it had as a positive effect was it definitely re-energized and brought morale up to both the British and the French soldiers, because there was a lot of debate about how the Americans were going to be used. You know, were they going to go on in under their own command? Uh, were they going to be distributed to these armies that were greatly depleted? And eventually it kind of became a little bit of a combination of the both, but for the most part, they were there as this relief and support to the British and to the French. But they learned very quickly uh, during this time that they needed to start working together. Because believe it or not, through the majority of this war, France and Britain had their own separate military commanders making their own separate military decisions and really not communicating with each other at all seems kind of like a short sight it sure does and if you think about the second world war which is a much more commonly right there was an allied there was an allied command essentially exactly they, they worked together they put aside their national pride and they more or less said okay what do we need to do the way of this war tell us where we need to go you're the more experienced commander you have you know superiority in this sense you have authority let's work together but tell us what to do you didn't have a lot of that going on right now. And not only that, but the British Empire was all over the place, all over the world, with a lot of different people, a lot of different beliefs, a lot of different languages being spoken. And a lot of them were being brought in together and they weren't communicating with each other either. So the British front was all over the place sometimes as well. And the French were just being, like I said, devastated in numbers. Yeah. Now, the French still had foreign uh, foreign colonies at this point, too. True. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But not to the extent of the British Empire, sure. is my point. And what you also have going on in 1917 is the Ottoman Empire starting to collapse. And this would have a huge impact on the Middle East. Uh, at the time of this recording, and to the weeks leading up to this, there's been a lot going on in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly between the old rivalries of Palestine and Israel. And again, the violence, the cycle of violence continues in this area. And this is not what this program is about. We're not going to talk about that. But what I'm saying is the events of the First World War have set the stage for what is going on in the world right now. Everything that is being done in that part of the world is a direct reflection on the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the moving in of the British uh, into those areas to to take over these former Turkish uh, holdings, land holdings. It, it's it's incredible to see the effects of this war still being played out today. And the violence still continuing. Yeah. Pretty incredible. I, I, I felt like it was worth making that, totally. that analogy there. And that's something that I remember when we talked about World War One, 
in history classes, that is not discussed. Yeah. The Ottoman piece of the war was never discussed. You know, we, we, I, I literally, before we did this episode, I was still under this misconception that the Ottoman Empire had somehow kind of collapsed in the late 19th century, not into the early teens as we're, or to the late teens, actually, uh, as we're referring to now. Yeah, and it was the British and the French who wanted to keep it together as much as possible, pre- predominantly the French and, and their allies, uh, such as Greece and what have you, who, through a whole separate turn of events uh, in the Turkish battle for independence, you know, led a four-year campaign against Turkish rebels who, who wanted a free Turkey, who didn't want an Ottoman Empire, who wanted to get rid of uh, the Sultan and, and, and rule their own country as a republic, and eventually did. Uh, it, it's a whole other episode that we could do, and an absolutely fascinating one. I would love to explore it. Yeah, the Ottoman Empire, on the Ottoman we, Empire. One we should definitely discuss, yeah. I think considering we're talking about the 100-year anniversary of World War One, I, I think over the next year we can definitely explore some more topics like that, like the Red Revolution, which we already said we're going to do another one on. I would love to do one on the Ottoman Empire. Listeners, if you have something that is a direct connection to World War One that you'd like this to cover in a later episode later in the year, we're not going to do a whole year of world war one but if there is something we we probably could if we planned it right we we could we really could um go ahead and give us your your listener suggestions uh there were a lot of other very nasty and horribly bloody battles of 1917 but i I don't want to focus on on that for this entire episode i want to move on to 1918 because 1918 was the moment where it could have all fallen apart this is the most incredible part about this war that really it could have been anyone's game right up to the very last charge of of german soldiers into into allied territory because in 1918 the germans realized if we don't push now and we don't push fast we are going to lose yeah, we also have another thing that probably influenced too, right? We talked about this during Fifty Shades of Black Death, Spanish flu. Spanish flu, devastating the world. Uh, we go back, listen to that episode, folks. Uh, it was one of my all-time favorites. Yes. If, if I had to pick love ten to talk episodes, about disease. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really, if I had to pick ten episodes that I love the most on this program, I think our our pandemic episode, uh, Fifty Shades of Black Death, which is also number one, my favorite title we have ever given to an episode. Um. <laughs> I feel like that was uh, such a great one. So go listen to it and you can hear a little bit about that. You know, it's interesting because it is debated. Uh, there was once a, a belief that Germany lost because of the immobilization of its army due to uh, the Spanish flu, due to, to influenza. It, it's now more or less contested that wasn't the case because it was affecting both sides so equally. There really wasn't... Yeah. Uh, anything that led to that and even more frighteningly it killed more people than the war did too oh absolutely yeah millions of people died and a lot of people suffered in germany yeah because of it because germany was uh so depleted of medical resources a lot of people died in germany um i i will tell you this there were also some of the first movements towards peace in 1918 which i find interesting because it is pretty much one of the bloodiest nastiest years of this war uh, I find it very interesting that Charles I of Austria, realizing how bad things were going, uh, initially not even willing to come to the table to broker a peace because he was making advances against the Italians. But when things turned south and the Italians started fighting back and making advances, he quickly realized that he didn't have much of a choice. He needed to 
to try to find a way out of this. And so against the Germans, in a totally separate trying to negotiate a peace pact, uh, he opened up negotiations uh, with America and with, with the Allies to try to figure out a way uh, to, to bring peace. I like and how you became British all of a sudden. Did I really? He entered into negotiations. Negotiations. You yeah. know, I watch so much British television, I, I absolutely pronounce a lot of things in a, a bit of a British way. Yes, he began to negotiate is what you said. Instead negotiate. Of negotiate. It's a negotiate. Yeah. It's the same thing. You yeah. understand what I'm saying. Of course. Saying. I'm just giving you a hard time, that's all. That's okay. I'm proud of it. Uh, and our British listeners appreciate it. So there you go. Um, you can you could add it to all of your schedules of of <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, yeah. sorry. Uh, what we do find is that this failed miserably, and it actually got back to the Germans what <laughs> he was trying to do, and it strained relations between Austria and Germany at a very critical time, a time when they needed to be communicating and working better together. Uh, this is one of the many things that that went very 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 badly for Germany. But not before they tried something in March of 1918, March 21st particularly, which was the beginning of five major offenses that were thrown against before the Americans arrived in great number. Because at one point during this war, 10,000 Americans were landing every single day in England. Wow. Being shipped over and ready to go into the war. So they, they realized if they don't do this now, this is it. They're done. They're done for completely. And some of these advances uh, were very, very impressive. Uh, you, you find some were actually advancing as much as 31 miles in a single day. Let's help put people into perspective here, that's, folks. That's a, over a marathon. Yeah. Well, you got to understand, 31 miles in the, in the scope of the First World War was unseen since 1914. That's a long way to go in such a short time. And one thing the Germans had now were newer tactics and taking advantage of a new type of soldier that was being seen on the battlefield for the very first time. This is the stormtrooper. Specially trained, special forces who were well-equipped and were trained to take enemy trenches as quickly as possible with lightning speed, running across no man's land, uh, getting some support from heavy heavy armored vehicles for the first time, and going in and really uh, devastating the British line. I mean, they were crumbling and falling apart. The, the French and British, the hope was to essentially divide them and then conquer them and to make a, a spearhead straight towards Paris. They got within 75 miles. And that was by May 23rd. So we're talking about two months the whole course of this war dramatically changed. And these demoralized, beaten back British and French forces were starting to give in. They were falling back continually. They were being wiped out in their retreats because these stormtroopers were so relentless in their attacks. As French soldiers were retreating, they were mowing them down and wiping them out. Huge numbers of casualties. And they got so close to Paris that they started shelling the city. Parisians were fleeing and running away. Uh, and thankfully, though, they held the line against these five major attacks. It's absolutely incredible when you think about it. And one thing that helped them do that was finally the Americans coming in and being able to provide mm -hmm. that relief. To give these guys a break. To go in there and take the front of this and kick them back. And the, the Germans were 
stunned. They did not expect the amount of American resistance that they actually encountered. They were counting on being able to do it fast enough before the Americans got in there. And it was a huge miscalculation on, on Ludendorff's account. He took mm. the brunt of this. You know, it was considered that March 21st was such an impressive day uh, because of the gain and territory that it was going to be declared a national holiday in Germany. Hmm. And by the time Ludendorff was forced to retreat and bring everyone back to the Hindenburg line, um, he, he was pretty much ready to resign. And he tried to, actually. He declared his intent to, to resign uh, to uh, the Kaiser, to Wilhelm, and he refused it. He wanted him to keep on, keep on going. Hmm. Uh, and that's when the Hindenburg line finally came under assault. This is the first time the Allies had enough forces and enough great ideas and communication and tactics to work together. They finally gave up this idea of a two-pronged approach and worked together for the first time and brought in armored vehicles, 400 tanks in a single attack finally. Now we had technology finally aiding us in this battle. And despite the, the veritable fortress that the Hindenburg line was, the Germans at this point were so beaten. You know, they had come so close. They had almost got, imagine you're a marathon runner and you've been running this marathon, staying ahead of everyone else. Maybe there's somebody who's right nearby. They're keeping neck and neck with you and you're exhausted. Your body's falling apart, but you keep on going because you believe that you can get to that finish line. And right before you get there, you trip and you fall on your face. Yeah. And you watch the guy next to you win the race. Yeah. That was the German soldiers. Yeah. And just like... Like you don't even get up at that point. Yeah, you give up. And that's exactly what was happening. The amount of deserting troops was enormous and was increasing daily. So not only were they not going to be able to hold the line because of the force that was being put against it and its defenses, but they just didn't have any soldiers anymore. They gave up. I'm sure that made a certain uh, German soldier very, very upset when he was serving in the First World War. You know who I'm referring to, of course. Uh, that would be Hitler. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Hitler's involvement in the First World War, you know, he was he was a corporal. He, he wasn't yeah. really a, a war hero by any means. He he had... Though he claimed to be, of course, later on. Of course he claimed to serve with distinction, and he was wounded in, in combat, and he was considered to have been a competent, if a bit inflated, officer. That was one of the critiques that he was given uh, <laughs> by his commanding officer, who didn't do terribly well in the future, as you can imagine. And uh, he would use that and this new idea that was being spread around Germany right around the start of this time that they got stabbed in the back. They've been betrayed. We came so close. The German army was strong and willing to fight to the death. And the Jews and the socialists and the Bolsheviks betrayed us. Right. Which this, is totally not true. <laughs> oh, for the next 20 odd years, this would be spoken at every single beer hall and bakery, and coffee shop, and public meeting place that you saw in Germany. There was this true, honest belief, this, this sense of denial that the German army could not be beaten, that it had to have been tricked, uh, and that it was these evil forces at play that were actually responsible for them losing the first war. Sounds like it wasn't just Hitler that had an inflated uh, sense of something. So... Yeah, yeah. There, was, there was a lot going on here. But then again, when you had been beaten so badly because of your forces were so demoralized, you need something to give you a boost, yeah. right? It's, that's pretty hard to accept, especially when you're a country that politically is still kind of trying to find its itself, right? The German Empire was not that, not that old. It was 
two kings into its yeah. lineage. It, compared to the 400-year empire of Austria-Hungary, you know, it was it was the new sure. kid on the block. And it was trying to make a name for itself, you know, it was trying to to take these uh, this national identity and, and run with it and do something with it and carve their own world empire like the British. Yeah. And it was an attempt that many scholars believe had to have been made. Uh, it's a very controversial idea, but it's true that these powers had really two choices. They could either give up, give in to revolution, and embrace a whole new way of thinking, or they could make this push and see if they could actually get these militaristic governments to, to stick around. And they needed to do it for them to eventually be completely wiped out. Hmm. It was a necessary evil, in my opinion. A lot of people say the First World War, and particularly those who were involved in it, felt like it, there was no point behind it. It was it was useless. So many people died for nothing. I choose not to believe that. And I think others should as well. I think stopping a militaristic Germany from coming to power and continuing the cycle of abuse uh, was very important. We needed to stop it. The way we handled the events after the war completely and totally screwed up. Well, let's talk about that in a little, in a little bit. Are, are we yeah. ready to move on to that, or do you want to have a couple more things? You know, I, I think it's worth talking about the fact, that, you know, that by, by September 27th, the Hindenburg Line had crumbled and fallen apart. Uh, as I said, not only were Germans uh, foot soldiers on the ground retreating, but the, the Navy had also at this point uh, rebelled. They were prepared to go all out in a blaze of glory, to go up against the British blockade and essentially try to regain any kind of dominance they could on any field of battle. And the naval commanders said no, and they were fired hmm. and they gave up. And they literally surrendered their ships to the Allies. Uh, they later scuttled them, <laughs> rather than hand them over and give any materials to the to the to the British or the French. They they sank all their ships. Um, nobody died in the process. Thankfully, they were all able to safely They're just being evacuate. Better, yeah, yeah, but they they kept you know them from using any of their equipment. And uh, by October thirtieth, the Turks were out of the war. And now by November 9th, Kaiser Wilhelm II abdicates the throne yeah and flees to the netherlands well we also have to recap a couple other things too right we had mentioned it last episode but july uh the royal family of russia which murdered. had already been which had already yep. been deposed from power were murdered by the bolsheviks that's right uh, and yet given a state funeral afterwards go figure uh yeah the red baron of course as we talked about uh this was the point where he got shot down sure. from the ground and like we said in the last episode these these airmen on both sides were celebrities they were heroes of the war they were symbols of valor for their country and to have the red baron killed uh and actually it is now believed shot down by a uh, gun on the ground as opposed to a gun in the air is fascinating yeah which is interesting because they pbs mentions this funny thing so we've talked about this timeline right they i love the way they say it, so i'm just going to quote it directly uh -huh. At 11 o'clock on the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918, the war ends as Germany and the Allies sign an armistice. Yeah. And and that is actually something that that, that phrasing has been used for a very, sure. very long time. I'm it, sure. It's, it's immortalized uh, on that timeline, but it is, um, it was, it was a moment of absolute shock and it was shock on both sides. Because to the Germans, they couldn't believe they actually lost. Uh, to the Austrians, they were afraid 
because they well, didn't the, know what was going to happen. The German's world turned upside down overnight. You had a, finally a unified country that was under a monarchy, and the next day... It was a republic. It was a republic. Boom. Like, instantly. And, and Austria, like I said, it had a long-standing imperial tradition, uh, and now what was Austria is... is half a do- or a dozen different countries <laughs> sure uh, and we'll talk about that in a moment but that was that was a huge shock i mean a very short time yeah uh, austria was was deassembled uh you have the ottomans now who were collapsing from the inside uh their very old empire was now falling apart and then you had the the shock and astonishment of the french and the british the americans were happy it went quicker than they were expecting. Finally, this nasty bloody war was over and they, they could stop really focusing on it and worrying about it. And they could go back to taking a stance of isolationism, which is what they eventually ended up doing after the war. And we'll talk about that and the impact it had on the League of Nations, which was, uh, again, very much telling of the future. But the British and the French, they, they didn't quite know what to do with themselves. Yeah. Because you know, the, the Germans had given up at a point where when they, if they'd done it when they really wanted to, they could have kept some idea of Germany as it was in 1914 around. It would never be like it was in 1914 again, but there would be elements of it. At least Germany in 1918, it would still be around. But because they were forced to uh, to pretty much completely give up, and, and they did so before the, the French and British could really invade Germany and come in and lay devastation to the country like was done in the Second World War. Uh, there was a lot of, what do we do now? You know, how do we define ourselves? How do we, how do we become a powerful Germany again? And those ideas would eventually lead to the rise of fascism in, in Germany and to the rise and, and power of Hitler and, and, and the start of the Second World War. Uh, and the British and French were so beaten at this point, were so sad, so demoralized that it's not a big surprise that when war came again in the second uh, alliteration of this terrible conflict, that they were overwhelmed, that the French army was unprepared, unequipped, untrained, and the Maginot Line, which was this, let's face it, imaginary defense system. Yes, there was actual fortresses there, but they left this gigantic gap in Belgium that Hitler quickly took advantage of, and they assumed, oh yeah, here's the Ardennes, there's a lovely forest, that'll stop them. Sorry. German tanks got a lot better than they did in the end of the First World War. Uh, they they plowed right through and right into France, and France fell. Oh, yeah, not there's, instantly, there's but a, <laughs> pretty quick. There's a great joke about that I've heard. It's like the, the French put all of their, their military in the cities, and like, Oh, hello, we are here. Oh, we don't understand that. We, we had the, the tanks, we had the military here. Yeah. Oh, funny thing. It turns out the trees, these tanks, they aren't so much roadblocks as they are speed bumps. <laughs> <laughs> and that, well, let's face it, that that's really the, the gist of it, right? Yeah. And it's sad. And if France hadn't been so demoralized and beaten back at the end of this of this war, that might have been a very different situation sure. later on. So I think that's my point, is that the whole world simply stood back and was in a state of shock. Yeah. And for the very first time now, at the end of 1918, now 1919 has come along, there's a, a, a you know, an armistice has been signed, there is an end to hostilities. There's a peace conference that is underway in Paris. That's right, the, the Paris Peace Conference, which would have huge impacting results for the world as a whole. Yeah. Uh, but you also had something else, and you had... The soldiers returning home. Yeah. 
And we have it very well documented in this country and in Britain and in France. You have it a little less documented in Russia because of the revolution that was going on then. But you had uh, these communities trying to reabsorb these people. And uh, many refer to this time as the lost generation. You know, these young folks who went over there to fight who were so fundamentally changed by what they saw. You know, we said this in one of the previous episodes that terms like shell-shocked were being used for the first time. And what it really was, was the the first signs of of PTSD being really recorded and written down. I mean, I'm sure this has existed for as long as warfare has existed, but to the scope and scale had never really been seen in the world before. Sure. And it's believed that because of the sheer amount of men, of young men, childbearing men who died during this war, that uh, as much as 10% of women in England of the same age never married or had children as a result. So that's what they mean by the lost generation is that there was a whole generation that was never born. There is that and other people can also interpret it as meaning their loss of innocence and their loss of their ability to come back and live. So we're actually really dealing with two different generations here. But, right. you know, you try to think about a lot of the soldiers who are giving up their lives right now in conflicts around the world. Sure. On all sides of every battle that's going on in this world, not just in America, everywhere. And those who come back and try to reintegrate into their lives, it's extraordinarily difficult. Uh I feel very sad. I feel very bad for these folks because in many ways, the ones who died kind of had it easier. You know, that was the end of their pain and suffering. For a lot of folks who came back maimed and, you know, disabled or disfigured or just so mentally destroyed as a result of this, uh, they would continue for many years, but in this perpetual state of agony. Not everybody. I'm, I'm not going to say that everyone who came back wasn't able to readjust and live a normal life. Obviously, there were. But there was a huge number of people who who suffered and suffered silently. Yeah. Because you didn't really acknowledge it back then. Well, I mean, PTSD is, I mean, such a, such a stigma. And even in today's society, you know, there's so much that we don't, we don't, we don't make a mental health part of our, conver- our, our collective cultural co- dialogue. Yeah. Uh, we really don't. And I don't mean to preach. I don't mean to get dogmatic or anything like that. But we've seen what happens when we do these tremendously large acts of violence when we talk about war and you know it thankfully now they're working on they're making some progress but not enough yeah for the soldiers who are trying to come home who have done their service who have a right to live full lives as citizens you know and they're not getting the help they need like when i see all these things in the news that of recent times with the troubles with the VA, God, just breaks my heart, you yeah. know? No, I, I agree completely. And I feel like uh, every country, everywhere in the world really needs to focus on these folks who, who sacrifice so much when they come back, really try to support them as much as they can. Or, you know, maybe just not put people into situations where they have to kill each other. Wouldn't that be awesome if we lived in a world where we all just woke up one day and we realized we don't have to kill each other? Well, let's talk <laughs> about that because that's what Wilson's vision was, right? Yeah. Wilson... Right from 1918, he had a vision for world peace, negotiating world peace. Now, let's talk about Wilson for a brief moment. Only president to have a PhD. Um, I mean, you technically have a doctoral degree when you graduate law school, and yeah. he had done that too. Or at least he had tried to. Um, so not to say he's the only doctorate who's been in office. There have been plenty of those. Right. He was the only PhD. He had a PhD in political science and history. Uh, and 
he actually had learned German when he was get finishing his doctoral studies. So I think he probably considered himself somewhat of an authority on the matter. And you know, when you have a degree in history and political science, I think that also can lead to some sense of idealism, especially when you're trying to create the sense of world peace, you know? So I think the idea looked good on paper with the League of Nations and obviously was the framework for what would eventually become the UN post-World War II, right? But as we were talking about, there were a lot of innate issues that happened uh, with how we dealt with reforming the world after the war that allowed it to collapse well you know wilson for for all that he did that was good was also a bit of a you know small-minded bigot as well yes he was a racist uh he i mean it was a bit of a chauvinist uh, as well and and really those principles also underlined what the league of nations would could have ultimately become because american involvement in the league of nations started strong and and failed miserably because we did not ratify our involvement in it we we did not join the league of nations we did not support it we did not put our weight well again it it came back to okay we finished the war we did our peace let's go back to what the way things were we wanted to be isolationist again that's not enough you know if you really want to make a difference if you really want to make a change you have to stick around and you have to support that and that's the lesson that we learned from this war because at the end of the second world war it was very different American involvement in Germany for whatever you want to consider it, because there was a lot of politics involved. That is not being denied. Uh, There was a lesson learned, though, from the first war that we needed to stick around. And our involvement in the initial charter for the United Nations was so strong, such a driving force, that we could not make the same mistakes that we did before. Who who do we thank for that? Uh, Eleanor Eleanor Roosevelt. Roosevelt, Exactly. Exactly. Um, Among many other individuals. Of course. But it is important that we that we mention this, we talk about this, because the League of Nations continued up until, you know, 1946, when it was dissolved and eventually turned into the United Nations. But it had so very little power behind it, so little authority that its great achievements that it did make only really were reinforced and, and came to a world as a whole as a result of them being absorbed into the United Nations. So a lot of that was missed opportunity, even though they did do a lot of very important, great stuff. I'm not. I don't want to completely underline the League of Nations and say that because America didn't support it, it failed completely. It didn't. There was a lot of important things that were done as a result of it, and there was a lot of great contributions. But they really wouldn't be enforced and felt around the world until the creation of the United Nations. Right. So it's an important distinction that I, I feel is worth making. Um, but we also, in this last few moments of this show, need to talk about Versailles because that really is what's going to end our our show today. Uh, in in June uh, of 1919, five years to the date. Five years to the date. That's right. You had the of, of the assassination. That is, yes, uh, June 28th, the assassination of um, Franz Ferdinand. Again, banned. Totally okay. They're fine, folks. They're totally yes. okay. Also, the people of Austria for, were were okay with this. They yeah, were, they were like, eh, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, this peace treaty is signed, and that's when things start spiraling down. <sighs> I'm so disappointed. It's so easy to look at this in retrospective, though. You know, I, I, They had a very difficult time in the moment when all this was being drafted. But what was behind all this was emotion. There was so much emotion because the world had never seen a conflict of this scale before. This is why it was called the world they would be war to end all wars. Yeah, the Great War. This was the thing that, that nobody ever thought we would be able to top until that happened. But it was so devastating. And the, the, the thought was we needed to avenge our countrymen. We needed the Germans to pay. We needed blood for blood. 
And instead of just going in and executing the entire country, they essentially did something similar by, you know, war war reparations. They 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 completely crippled Germany financially. Uh, yes, yeah, to the point where over a billion Deutschmarks were the equivalent of one American dollar. Yeah, you could buy a, a loaf of bread. Yeah, with it. I mean, it, it, it's ridiculous. Uh, and with that came the total collapse of the German military. So the Germans were prevented from creating U-boats, could not have those any longer. The German Navy was greatly diminished in size. They could not build new tanks. They could not build new aircraft. They could not do anything that made them a threat. Their standing army was restricted to 100,000 souls, and that was it. And it wouldn't be until the rise of fascism and Hitler defying these, these you know, uh, limitations that were placed on the country that you would see that change uh and with this came all this dissent and anger and frustration and along with that came starvation a lot of people don't realize that the 1920s the early 1920s in europe was horrible the 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 sheer ecological destruction that was done as a result of this war and the the breakdown of these former nations that you know produced an enormous amount of food for a lot of these empires, led to mass starvation. Somewhere between 10 and 15 million people starved to death in Russia as a result of this war and the revolution and their later civil war that happened as a result of it. That's... that's, Yeah. That's almost as many people who died in the war, you know? And and I'm I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting a little... I might be sounding a little crazy at the moment but something like that the the scope of that just it it upsets me thoroughly and starvation was happening in germany it was happening all over the place people were dying all over the place and uh the total scope of this war and yet in america we were in an age of economic prosperity well the great depression wasn't too far away and when that happened we 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 sure we took a nasty hit there were children starving in america but there weren't you know millions of orphan children like there were in germany so you know there was a very big disconnect yeah absolutely Um, we had used it as means to literally change the face of america yeah you know when world war one started it was not uncommon for the common household to have you know a horse-drawn carriage and yet by the end of the war or i should say by the by the mid-20s you know uh, cars electrical lights in every house you know or in many houses I should say, we modernized the country, right? And it was all because of that little boom we had gotten by helping them out. So very two drastically uh, distinctly different tones going on post-war. Yeah. Uh, this this set the stage for the future. Uh, whole new countries were created as a result of all of this, keep in mind. The, the whole landscape of Europe had never been so dramatically uh, redrawn as it was at the end of this war. Uh, new countries came into existence as a result, such as Yugoslavia, uh, the you know formerly uh, somewhat autonomous region of Romania now was its own country. Uh, you know, you had Czechoslovakia, you had Estonia, you had, well, Estonia may have already been a country at that time, I can't remember, but you had all these other countries who were now either independent from Russia or were independent from Austria-Hungary that, that came into existence uh, as a result of all of this. And what's interesting is what happened in the Balkans is, and and the, the location, right, you know, which was of the former Austrian Empire, 
you had some ethnic Germans who were in that country at the time who more or less considered themselves the majority, right? Because they were all one unified uh, nation or, or empire, I should say, excuse me. But now they found themselves as a minority hmm. in, in a country where they had never been before. And certain nasty, horrible individuals like Hitler used this as part of his propaganda and part of his power and part of his control over yeah. these parts of the world when the Second World War did erupt uh, in the years leading up to that. Japan was now redefining itself as a world power. You know, it proved during the, the Russo-Japanese War that it could hold its own and that it was now becoming a very effective empire. It was able to fight. It was able to conquer lands. And after the First World War, it renewed its confidence because it fought on the side of the Allies, keep in mind. It helped to right. take out a lot of German-held ter held territory in the Pacific. Uh, and it would have a, a future ripple that would, of course, result in you know, eventually the bombing of Pearl Harbor and its entry and America's entry into the Second World War. Right. Uh, it, it is incredible to watch the ripples that come uh, from from all of this. The, the whole world was was affected. And before we, we finish up, there's, there's two last things that I want to highlight that I encourage our listeners to go and maybe learn and study and find a little bit more about. Uh, one of them is Wilhelm II, the, the Kaiser of Germany who, keep in mind, like I stated in one of our previous, I think the first episode, he played a very minor role during the actual war. It was really Hindenburg and, and Ludendorff that were leading Germany's future. It, it was Wilhelm that was handing out medals and making public appearances. And uh, he would eventually, like I said, abdicate and then flee to the Netherlands where he would spend the rest of his life. And it's fascinating to, to just read about him in exile. Uh, he let go of his famous mustache, and he changed his appearance dramatically. He actually became an archaeologist uh, and spent a lot of time performing you know, excavations. He he was an interesting individual, but he held on to this idea that he was still a rightful ruler of Germany, that the monarchy should be restored, and that he should be brought back as its figurehead and continue on, much like the constitutional monarchy of, of England. Uh, he also was in contact with Hitler since Hitler's rise to power when he was declared, uh, you know, president, uh, when he was when he was voted into power in Germany. Uh, he started sending telegrams congratulating him, uh, to hit which Hitler was known to reply, you know, privately among his, his confidants that, you know, what is this idiot doing now? How is how dare he communicate with me? Because he, he, Hitler blamed much of the devastation of the First World War on also Germany's leadership. Sure. Uh, and so he, he despised the man, even though... Uh, Wilhelm continued to to try to get him to be reintroduced into Germany, and sure. uh, eventually, he actually was was given his own kind of private uh, guard uh, to make sure that he wasn't killed during the Second World War, because yeah. there's so many fears that he would be, in fact, uh, dead <laughs> uh, before the end of it, because Hitler hated him so much. Sure. Uh, so, an, an interesting personality, interesting person, who honestly was very much villainized by England, but played such a very little role in the war. It really was Hindenburg and Ludendorff that, that did most of that devastation. And the last thing I want to do before we, we read some listener feedback and, and finish up this truly epic uh, three-part episode is I would like to uh, very quickly read off uh, the list of the countries who were involved in this war. And then I'd like to give the, the final totals of, of sure. the dead. Um, I think it's only fair to acknowledge those individuals who who fought and sacrificed in this war. 
so on the, the side of the allies, uh, Austria, Canada, India, New Zealand, Newfoundland, South Africa, and the United Kingdom made up the, the British Empire. Um, of course, you have East Africa, Belgium, France, Greece, uh, Italy, the Empire of Japan, uh, you have Portugal, Romania, the Russian Empire, Serbia, and uh, last but certainly not least, the United States. Uh, the total number of dead on the, uh, the Allied side uh, is between eight and nine and a half million. Wow. Um, some of the, the worst numbers come from Russia. Uh, nearly three million dead in Russia. And like I said, 1.7 million dead in France. Uh, Italy also took an enormous loss at 1.2 million. And their entry into the war, you know, was in many ways considered to be very much territorial. They wanted to gain Austrian territory and they over a million people died for as a result of it. And of course, also the 1 million people who died uh, in the United Kingdom and every other nation who contributed to these terrible numbers. Uh, and then on the central powers, we also have to remember that, you know, while many times these folks are, are villainized, uh, when you when you are in this country, you serve in their army and you're sent into battle, uh, you know, you are just as much a victim as the other side of it. And we need to acknowledge that, that the soldiers who died on the other side had families, they had children, they had homes, they had lives, and they should also be remembered, even though you know, in some cases, they were the aggressors. I think it's important to remember the people that were in that war. And of course, we're talking about Austria, Hungary, Bulgaria, the German Empire, and the Ottoman Empire. And their death totals are not all that dissimilar, between seven and eight and a half million dead. Uh, and there were also quite a few neutral nations that were pulled into the conflict as well, but the total dead was between 15 and 17 million. Mm. And that's just dead. We're not talking about the millions of others who were affected as a result of the war, wow. who were casualties of the war. I just wanted to... Yeah. I know it's sad, and I always hate ending on a sad note, but I feel like there's no other way to end the First World War. Uh, but listeners, I, I cannot plea with you enough. This is a war that is so often overlooked and overshadowed and forgotten and do not forget the sacrifices of everybody who was involved in this war. This has been 100 years now since the beginning of this, and this is, a, this is an important moment in our history as a human species to stop, reflect, and please, most importantly, learn. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's weird, because I want to say that this was a more devastating war than World War II was, but yet they both have their own ways in which they were they were worse yeah. than the other. I think more people in the military died in this one, but there are clearly much more people who died Depends in Depends on the military too. you're talking about. Because yeah. we're you know, when you think about Russian and Japanese numbers of dead, yeah. uh, and, and you know, and the sheer amount of civilian right. deaths in the Second World War. I, I get where you're going Civil there. well civilian deaths I'm, I'm not counting. So yeah, it, in terms of talking about civilian deaths, you're right. That's where yeah. World War Two is far more devastating. Uh not even including the Holocaust, which in itself is I mean, horrendous. And there were genocides performed in this war as well. Yeah. You know, think of the somewhere between half a million and a million and a half Armenians were slaughtered uh, by the Ottomans. Uh, and I know there's a lot of like in, in, in Turkey, even to this day, there's a lot of folks who deny 
that that was ever genocide, who say it was infighting, uh, ethnic infighting that was was causing it and not a conservative effort to kill these people. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was about 100,000 or 200,000, somewhere in there, Jews who were killed during the Red Revolution when, when Russia sure. was was yeah. overthrown. There was a lot of death and destruction. Yeah. And let's not also forget the genocides of the First World War. Sure. And, you know, we don't live in a world where there is complete peace today. However, I will say that we have learned so much from this war and from World War II. Yeah. That the wars we do have are small enough that that's exactly what they say. We don't let them escalate to the levels we do. Someone could, you know, you could make all these different arguments about the military industrial complex that America has developed yeah. since then. And I might argue against that to a certain degree, but I understand what you're, I understand what yeah. you're saying. I'm not very, I'm totally against the military industrial complex, but yeah, I also understand the function we have, yeah. the United Nations and these world powers have served in trying to maintain as much peace as possible. And we are in now the longest state of peace the world has seen in its history Globally speaking, yeah, yeah, we're not talking about no stuff that's going on within we're talking our, about our dec- countries. De- declarations of war. There, there's still violence happening around the world. Absolutely, yeah. I'm not saying that we're not yeah. trying to sound like we're naive to that, but because there's, I mean, God, look at the Sudan. We won't even go there. Yeah, but we could go on and on. I, I think we've we we have kind of run out of time at this point. Uh, listeners, we want to hear from you. We want to hear your opinions. We hear your thoughts on this important event. Uh, in human history and how maybe it's affected you. You know, there are a lot of people whose lives were touched as a result of this war. Go look into your history if you're not already aware of it, particularly if you are living in the, the nations of Britain and and Germany and France and Austria. Look into your family's history and see how that war affected you. I would be personally fascinated to to learn and i think our, our listeners will be, be interested in learning as well and i'll be honest if we get enough responses i think maybe we could do uh, a whole segment sure we totally I could think it would be really interesting so let us know how did this war affect you if you want to give us that feedback of course go to nerdonomy.com and click on the uh, give us feedback button and tell us eric what else can you do when you go to nerdonomy.com well you can also go ahead and click on that donate button and, you can uh, indeed we much appreciate that because uh we don't get paid to do this uh we get paid in a, in a fashion due to the satisfaction that it gives us helping to bring history to the world but uh you know that won't build us a ceiling so we need those kind of things and if you could please send us some money that'd be appreciated that's good and we can take anything uh as little as a dollar through the our PayPal account that's on there. Now, if you have more than a dollar, you can certainly donate that. You can also benefit yourself a little bit too and sign up for our audible.com affiliate that's in the right side of our website or going to audibletrial.com forward slash nerdonomy. When you do that, of course, you sign up for every free trial, we get a small commission. If you also sign up for the actual membership, we get a commission as well. So uh, keep that in mind if you're trying to explore your options. And if you do that, you'll get an honorary commission into the Army of Nerd. Indeed. Which I have uh, officially declared its existence of today. Uh, we are forming an army uh, to defend nerdism around the world and to uh, and to bring the message of nerd to all. Uh, I was not informed of uh, what Eric was saying tonight. Oh, that's okay. No, no, no. So, I'm making you Kaiser. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, so that may actually... I, I'm just... I'm worried about U.S. <laughs> tanks showing up in front of the nerd cave. It That's okay. Not, I've got a Zeppelin. <laughs> you're not making... I you're not making the case any, any better. Uh, folks, it is that time. So uh, until we meet again, 
stay nerdy and tune into us next week same nerd time same nerd channel nerdonomy.com bye bye Uh, man, um, you, you okay? No. No, I didn't, I didn't think so. You, you want a soda or something? I can get you a soda. Three times. Yeah. Three times! <laughs>